From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razazan. And I'm Khalil Bandeib. This week, we bring back a 2006 conversation Brown University professor Bishara Dumani had with Dr. Stefan Asturian, adjunct associate professor of history at UC Berkeley, about the historical circumstances that led to the Armenian genocide. Later in the program, we'll speak with Palestinian physician Dr. Hatim Kanane about his new collection of short stories titled Chief Complaint, The Country Doctor's Tales of Life in Galilee. In a light-hearted and entertaining way, this book explores the changing, precarious, and ever-shrinking world of Palestinians living in Israel. All this coming up on Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Stay with us. April 24th marks the anniversary of the 1915 Armenian Genocide, when the Ottoman Empire began carrying out a systematic plan to annihilate its Armenian population. This week, we bring back a 2006 conversation between Professor Bishara Dumani and Dr. Stefan Asturian, discussing the historical circumstances that led to the killing of over a million Armenians. In the studio with me today is Professor Stefan Asturian. He teaches history here at UC Berkeley, and he's the executive director of the Armenian Studies program. We'll be talking today about the Armenian genocide on occasion of the officially designated anniversary of that genocide, April 24th, of every year, starting in 1915. Welcome, Professor Asturian. Thank you. Now, you're an expert on the modern history of the Armenians, especially on the late Ottoman Empire, on the Caucasus, one of the world's leading historians of the Armenian question and the genocide. And I wanted to start with you by asking, how should we understand the concept of genocide and where does the Armenian genocide fit in? The concept of genocide entered international law uh, after the Second World War. It's a word that was coined by a Polish uh, Jewish lawyer and professor whose name was Raphael Lemkin. It comes from the word genos and kedere in Latin. Kedere is to kill, and genos is a race or uh, an ethnic group. So the idea is that genocide is an attempt at killing, and I insist in whole or in part, the idea is not that you kill everybody, in whole or part an ethnic group or a racial group. There were debates in the newly formed United Nations at that time about including the idea of exterminating a political group as such. But because of the politics of that time, in particular the opposition of the Soviet Union to that idea, the concept of political group was left out. Yet, obviously, some of the developments in the 20th century, such as the extermination of many Cambodians would certainly qualify in my mind as a genocide. Now, what is uh, very interesting is that uh, we have uh, footage of Raphael Lemkin and his archives are also available. And Raphael Lemkin actually had in mind, in addition to the extermination of the Jews, he is filmed as mentioning that uh, the Armenian genocide was the first instance that came to his mind to refer to such a phenomenon. Yes, the Armenian genocide took place at the opening of the 20th century. It was actually not just one event, but a process. 
April 24th, 1915 was designated as a day of remembrance uh, because it was on that day that much of the Armenian intelligentsia was rounded up and exterminated, beginning a larger process of killing. Would you say then that uh, the Armenian genocide, as perhaps one of the first genocides of the 20th century, has come to define our understanding of genocide, or is it one that's not really still very well understood or talked about? In general, the importance of historic events is determined uh, by very often by the size of the nation to which they pertain and by their uh, representatives in academia. Events that might look very important to us uh, might, in the scheme of things, you know, in a broader sense in history, be less important than they actually are. But if we belong to important nations, uh, such as the United States or uh, France, obviously the histories of those countries take disproportionate size compared, let's say, with the histories of smaller countries and groups. A genocide usually takes place as a result of a particular process of polarization between two groups. It would be extremely unusual to exterminate a group of people like that on the spur of the moment because you are irritated by something. That's not how it happens. There needs to be an ideology. There needs to be uh, some kind of a conflict involved. There needs to be a particular type of leadership. Most genocides in the 20th century have taken place in a context where you have, for example, you have a ruling party. In most of them, a secret service or an elite ideological group is involved, and so on. The origins of the Armenian genocide are a bit lengthy. Let's put it this way. As a result of massive immigration of Muslim refugees from Russia and the Balkans, starting essentially at the end of the 1850s, but increasing year after year as a result of the Ottoman loss, the war, you know, defeat in the war against Imperial Russia in 1877-78. Subsequently, during the Balkan Wars in 1912-13, you have a constant influx of four to five million Muslim refugees. Who were basically being ethnically cleansed out of the Caucasus. Absolutely. Ethnic cleansing is a primary characteristic of modern state formation and, and of the modern condition That's in general. Right. And so in this case, it's one you're saying one set of ethnic cleansing is intimately tied to another. Absolutely. That is uh, beyond doubt in my mind. And this is essentially the result of research over the past, say, six, seven years, you know, that shows that beyond doubt. That raised issues of resettlement, land. The Ottoman state was uh, bankrupt, literally, as you know, in the second half of the 19th century. It was weakening politically, losing wars after wars, losing territories after territories. So that was one of the causes. The second cause was... Where did these refugees go to, and how did that impact Armenians? At first, half of them are resettled in the European part of the Ottoman Empire. Keep in mind that at some point the Ottoman Empire stretched from what is now Albania up to almost North Africa Mm -hmm. and encompassed Iraq. But what you see in the 19th century, I mean, if you juxtapose various maps, you will see slowly but surely the empire shrinking down in the European part, as well as actually in the Middle East, where the French occupy some parts of North Africa, the British take over Egypt, and so on. At first, in the 1860s, uh, the Circassians who were displaced from the Caucasus, uh, half of them were resettled 
in the European part of the Ottoman Empire where there were very few Armenians. The remainder, about 500 to 550,000, were resettled in Anatolia, what they used to call Asiatic part of the Ottoman Empire, and many of those in areas inhabited by Armenians. Violence developed, land usurpation, sporadic violence, killing, some kidnappings, uh, some brutality, and so on. This was one of the causes for Armenian discontent. The second one was some transformation in the Kurdish organization and social structure in eastern Anatolia. Because the Kurdish areas and the Armenian areas are... Overlap, uh, yes. overlap very clearly. Yes, they do. And, and I think your research shows that most of the Armenians you're talking about are actually peasants. Absolutely. The majority of the Armenians in the Ottoman Empire, in particular in those areas where the problem started, were overwhelmingly agrarian, involved in agrarian economy and peasants, settled peasants. Uh, there was a Kurdish emirate in eastern Anatolia stretching from the, the area of Lake Van to northern Iraq, including Diyarbakir and so on. For various reasons for which we have no time here, the Ottoman Empire intervened against that emirate with the support of Britain. A kind of total anarchy developed among uh, Kurds, who up to then were more or less quite centralized thanks to that emir. Phenomenon of double taxation emerged with local Kurdish leaders who could carry arms because they were Muslims, plus because of their traditions, as you know, in the Ottoman Empire, any non-Muslim couldn't carry arms and so on, started also a phenomenon of extortion. Land usurpation is the key issue. These two problems led to a number of requests on the part of the Armenians to the Sultan to solve these problems. The first one that was drafted starting in 1869 and sent to the Sultan in 72. Another one was sent two years later. These are like massive petitions. Yeah, they detail the events mm -hmm. in various locations. The first one covered about 340 locations, mm -hmm. and they give you the details of what happened, who was involved, mm -hmm. very often naming the persons mm -hmm. and giving a cursory definition of who they are. It mm -hmm. can be a sheikh, it can be an ara, bey, and so on. Mm -hmm. The main phenomenon when you do some uh, content analysis is very simple, is land usurpation. And the second most important complaint after land usurpation is the lack of legal recourse. That is, when you go and complain to the provincial courts, they do nothing. Because you are a minority in a sociological sense, you are deprived of power. Some of those people are also benefiting from this process. Mm -hmm. and this was a period, as uh, you know, Beshara, where uh, the Ottoman Empire was undergoing reforms known as the Tanzimat. Reforms transforming the legal system centralizing provinces, promulgating equality among all elements in the Ottoman Empire. These reforms were not uh, welcome. They were carried out in a way that uh, did not reflect the level of evolution of the population, created massive discontent among provincial notables in the eastern provinces, who saw them as an attempt at as something that would essentially serve the interest of the minorities. And in this case, in th that area, the main minorities were, no, they were the Armenians. Mm -hmm. So they did whatever they could to undermine this phenomenon. And when Sultan Abdul Hamid took power at the end of the 1870s, his agenda was just the opposite. He was totally against the phenomenon of the Tanzimat, the idea of equality and so on, even though he kept the idea of modernization and centralization. 
while there is doubt in my mind about why the Ottoman Empire didn't do anything to solve these violence, agrarian problems and so on, up to 1877. Was it because they didn't have the means, they didn't want to irritate the notables and the Kurds? I don't know because access to the Ottoman archives is quite regimented. There's a political filter. Yes. After 1876-77, there is no doubt that Sultan Abdul Hamid has no intention whatsoever of doing anything. That is then the problem of intent, you know, is quite clear. We have his memoirs, we have uh, memoirs of Grand Viziers where they actually oppose Abdul Hamid. Grand Vizier Said Pasha was against this type of treatment of the meted Armenians. out at the Armenians. Mm. Then there is a policy aimed at displacing Armenians from the eastern provinces, emptying the region of its Armenian population, which was substantial. They were not the majority in any of the provinces except one or two sub-districts in the provinces, in the region of Van in particular, but they represented certainly 30, 35, sometimes 39 uh, or 40 percent of the population. So what would be your best estimate of the Armenian population in the eastern provinces? Mm -hmm. There was a first Ottoman census. Actually, it's the second one, but the first one was partial. Results of which were published and corroborated in 1844 uh, by a gentleman called Ubisini. Mm. Later on, a hundred years later, in a commemorative volume of the Tanzimat, there is a, an article by a Turkish academic who essentially says that that first census undercounted the population, in particular the non-Muslim population. Now, what did that first census tell about the Armenians? It told us that there were 2.4 million Armenians in the Ottoman Empire at that time. Ironically enough, when the Armenian question becomes internationalized as a result of Russian and European policies in 1878, as you know, there were two major conferences in which for the first time the Armenian issue was mentioned. Suddenly, in the census of 1878, we find out that the Armenian population now is, uh, I believe, below one million. My view, to go straight to your question without going into intricate academic issues, I believe that in 1914, there were 2 to 2.4 million Armenians in the Ottoman Empire, two-thirds of which lived in the so-called eastern provinces. This is Bashar Dumani. You're listening to the voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I'm speaking with Professor Stefan Astorian. We'll continue our discussion after this break. This is Bishar Dumani. I'm back speaking with Professor Stefan Astorian about the Armenian genocide. The social structure of the Armenian community itself varied widely. Yes. 
the overwhelming majority were peasants who were suffering from land usurpation, yeah. and double taxation, yeah. violence mm-hmm. against them, condoned after 1877 by the state itself. And encouraged and, and encouraged. aimed at the driving them off the land. And this was reached its apex with a series of massacres in 1894 in one region, in the region of Sassoon. Estimates vary, but 6,000 to perhaps 10,000 peasants were killed under the pretext of a revolt. But actually, it's not revolt. Uh, They refused to pay double taxes, that is, both to the state and to the Kurds. And then they attacked some of the Kurds that came to raise the taxes. Then in 95-96, at the time when the Europeans again are trying to internationalize the issue, for their own interest, may I say, Sultan Abdul Hamid at exactly that time organizes massive massacres throughout the Ottoman Empire. Again, estimates of the casualties vary from 100 to about 300,000 individuals. I would say certainly somewhere between 150 to 200,000 is very reasonable because I had a detailed look a little bit by locations. These uh, massacres were not an attempt at exterminating the whole of the population. We have documents showing that the goal was to establish a kind of very clear Muslim majority all over the place in the eastern provinces. Uh, The second goal was to diminish the size of the Armenians there, to make it essentially impossible for any European powers to even envision some plan of autonomy or anything like that for Armenians in that region as they had done, as you know, in the European part of the Ottoman Empire. And then after 1895-1896, when do we see uh, massive violence against Armenians again? After 1895-96, you have the the emergence of Armenian political parties, and their main agenda is again the land issue, and equality, and justice overall. It is after, ironically enough, Sultan Abdul Hamid was displaced in a revolution in 1908, the Young Turk Revolution, led by a Committee of Union and Progress, which was the ruling party. It is a year later, in April of uh, 1909, at a time when a counter-revolution led by people who were uh, sympathetic to Sultan Abdul Hamid was taking place in Istanbul, that uh, two series of massacres started just north of Syria, in the region known as Cilicia, the main city being Adana. But they weren't just confined to Adana. They spread as far inland as uh, Hajun, you know, which is a very remote area, and spread even in areas like uh, Antakya and uh, Kesab in Syria. Northern Syria. Northern Syria. Mm -hmm. Those massacres, uh, even according to one of the young Turk leaders who wrote his memoirs, Jemal Pasha, a very prominent leader, who at that point was appointed governor of the region of Adana, you know, in the summer of 1909. He says that about 18,700 individuals uh, were killed, 1,600 or 700 of whom were uh, Muslims, the rest Armenians. It is true that the Armenian quarters were burned down. Mm-hmm. Consular reports, German and others, uh, go up to 30,000 individuals. What was killed. the reason for this latest round? The first reason is uh, there were two waves of massacres, one starting on the 14th of April. And here we have evidence that Sultan Abdul Hamid uh, had sent envoys to the region. There were rumors of massacres and Armenian uprising in various areas in the Ottoman Empire, concomitant, at, uh, you know, at about the same time. It goes from Konya uh, to Kayseri and so on. The same phenomenon of spreading rumors that Armenians are going to 
create kingdoms here, they are insulting mosques and Islam, went, you can follow it through the consular reports, both German and British. It worked in the region of Adana because of those envoys and because the valley, the governor of that region, was very close to Sultan Abdul Hamid. He used the instruments of state to create yes. an, an, an atmosphere yeah. which allowed, again, these massacres to take place as a way, really, of uh, dealing with what he perceived as Western government's attempts to break up the Ottoman Empire by supporting irredentist nationalist movements within the empire. Absolutely. And, and also to maintain a, a local clientele under a uh, official, really, ideology of pan-Islamism. Absolutely. As the Ottoman state is a, as a way of, of maintaining his own power and the central power of the state. Yes, and one of the very interesting phenomena uh, is that in Adana, in that region of Adana, this was a region where cotton production was very important, where exportation was significant. And for a number of reasons, Armenians were able to start buying lands starting in the late 1870s in that area and displacing the tribal leaders who had been forcibly resettled there in those areas. Uh, those grew indebted to Armenian uh, urban entrepreneurs and started losing land, among other reasons as a result of the slow implementation of a land law that was promulgated in the 1850s. Yeah. So yeah. the commercialization of agriculture, Absolutely. tying the Ottoman Empire to the world market through the production of cotton, raised the uh, value of land yes. and allowed capitalists or people with money to be able to take over a lot of these lands, displacing right. people. So you have two different processes of displacement taking place at the same Absolutely. time. Absolutely. And then you have uh, rumors to the effect that the local bishop will be the next Armenian king of Cilicia, that seasonal laborer coming from as far as Van Diyarbekir to that region to work in April, that this is an attempt by Armenians to take over the region, to Armenianize it, so it's a very complicated issue. I would call infrastructural causes, economic Lo tension. Locally-based causes. Yes. And state then, policies yeah. and then Western intervention all working together. Absolutely. And so that led to the April, April massacre. massacre. The first wave. And the very significant phenomenon, Beshara, is the second wave. The Young Turks... This is, uh, remind, us, remind us again what year... In April 1909 again. 1909. So the first wave of massacre starts on the 14th, lasts up to the 17th approximately. Mm -hmm massive destruction, really horrific events. The second one, the Young Turks are able to counter the counter-revolution in right. Istanbul, as you know, by sending an army from the European part of the Ottoman Empire. And they send also a division to Adana mm -hmm. to supposedly stop the massacres. Mm -hmm. And the event that is much more difficult to understand is the fact that when those troops arrive around April the 25th, then you have a second wave of massacres under the pretext that Armenians shot at them. You know, they literally wipe out the town. They are the ones burning the place and so on. And the massacres become even more intense for three days. Now, in the absence of access to the archives, military archives of the Ottoman Empire, which are essentially close to almost everybody, it is difficult to find really the intent behind it. I cannot tell you for sure. I cannot bet my life on an interpretation. There are several possibilities, but very clearly it indicates 
because whether there was one Armenian shooting from the Armenian quarter doesn't justify, you know, the extermination of 15,000 at that point, several thousand individuals. It very clearly indicates, I would say, uh, if there is such a thing, a frame of mind, perception of the situation, of how you deal with minorities, what is the right way of dealing with them. It reminds me of uh, various things going on in the Middle East or elsewhere, or uh, somebody who throws a stone, you know, uh, can be shot at. You know? So there is a style of uh, handling, you know, people. Tremendous overreaction. Absolutely. Compared to yeah. the, th the threat. Yeah. And so because of an environment that's already in place. Yeah, and a frame of mind and way of perceiving group. So this is what goes on. After 1909, uh, for wave? another three years, the dominant Armenian political party, the Armenian Revolutionary Federation, known as Tashnak Tsutyun, and the Committee of Union and Progress are still allied. I mean, this is the irony of the situation because Armenians are very often in Ottoman historiography portrayed as revolutionaries who want independence. Actually, the leading Armenian party, and by far the, the most dominant one, was voting with the Young Turks in the parliament, supported the Young Turks because there was no other alternative. The other alternative was Sultan Abdul Hamid and people like him. Collaboration between the Committee of Union and Progress and the Tashnak Tsutyun went on up to the summer of 1912. And we have the documents, I have the documents personally, uh, that, again, the lack of any kind of resolution of the agrarian question was the key issue, because dispossession of land, sporadic violence, violence being condoned legally, despite the promises made by the Committee of Union and Progress, starting in 1908, from the moment they took power of solving those issues, nothing happened. And it is only in the summer of 1912 that the Tashnaktion decided to adopt in the parliament position of neutrality, mm. not even of opposition, actually, at that point. Mm. And there was a split between those two groups. The significant moment, if I may go on for another minute, was coup d'etat organized by the Young Turks at the beginning of 1913. For a year, they were not in power. That coup d'etat established a totally dictatorial regime with a very important place given to the army. And this set the background for the possibility of a genocide, along with a defeat at the beginning of the First World War. The Ottomans had a vision of a pan-Turanism, pan-Turkism, of spreading up to Central Asia, creating a huge empire that they would rule overall. And their pasha, their military leader and key leader of the Committee and Pro Union and Progress had that vision. There was another ideology now, not pan-Islamism, but Turkism. That is the idea of creating a kind of homogeneous entity, territory, dominated by Turkish people, which irritated, by the way, various elements in the Ottoman Empire, including Arabs. That's you know? right. There was a honeymoon between the Committee Union yeah. Progress and Young Turks and many different That's uh, right. ethnic groups, mm -hmm. Arabs, Armenians, mm -hmm. and others, because they thought they could work together towards sure. a modern state mm -hmm. apparatus in which mm -hmm. you have equality of yeah. freedom. But really, very quickly, the Young Turn Revolution, uh, within a few years, was led by people who had this now pan-Turkic ideology. Absolutely. And Enver Pasha actually took a big army out to, towards Central Asia to try That's to create right. that empire, and it was a colossal failure. Failure. He, he was wiped out in the Caucasus uh, Mountains. He uh, attacked the Russians in the middle of a very nasty winter. You know, it's a very cold area, but that winter was even worse. He wasn't literally defeated by the Russians. I mean, his army froze literally to death because of logistical problems that he hadn't planned. 
Out of 95,000 soldiers, approximately barely 10,000 survived. And that was a shock. And then something else happened at the end of December 1914, right. you know, and then he pulls out of there and uh, returns to I Istanbul. And then uh, starting in March, you have the appearance of the first elements of the British and other navy near Istanbul. This is the famous Dardanelle expedition. And there is a kind of panic in Istanbul at that point. We have uh, memoirs to the effect that there are plans to move the government inland to Eskishehir, mm -hmm. you know, which is a, a totally different place, that the capital is going to crumble down, that if the Westerners succeed, the allies succeed, it's finished, the regime has devastated. So this is the, the context. And then, to go back just one second, in January 1914, Finally, the Western powers, including Russia, Germany, and so on, agreed on a scheme to solve the Armenian question. This was called the Reform Act, and they decided to send two inspector generals to the eastern provinces, which they didn't name as Armenian uh, areas, to divide that area into two regions, and those inspector generals were going to supervise reforms create a mixed gendarmerie with both Armenians and non-Armenian police force, solve the land question, and many other things. It is at the moment those people, those two inspector generals, arrived in Istanbul, and one of them was uh, on his way to Van, that the First World War started, and they were sent back. Why am I mentioning this? Because, you see, you have the coincidence of an ideology, a dominant party ruling in a dictatorial context, a war, the threat of a reform that is basically By has the, the potential of undermining Turkish control in what is left of the Ottoman Empire. And then you have one massive defeat and a massive threat to Istanbul, mm -hmm. not coming, visible as early as March. It is at that moment, according to the best estimates, an article I wrote years ago and an article by Taner Akcham, that the decision, the final decision of carrying out the genocide was taken at the end of February or uh, early March in a meeting of the Committee of Union and Progress. That much we know on the base of Ottoman sources and memoirs. Mm. So we know about the decision mm. to do it. Mm -hmm. But as I have said, such a decision takes place usually only after a process. You don't decide to exterminate people like that because you are irritated by one event. So what happened? On uh, April the 24th, uh, the leading intellectuals, politicians, uh, lawyers, publishers were rounded up in Istanbul at night. These are the Armenians, of course. The Armenians, yes. And uh, driven to an inland town, Changere. Mm. And it thus happens that my step-grandmother was from Changere and uh, remembered those events. And then from Changere, they were dispatched into various directions and, ex and killed some of them in a very gory manner. I mean, a deputy in the Ottoman parliament and probably one of the two or three greatest Armenian writers uh, of the 20th century, Krikor Zohrab, had his skull crushed. So that's why Armenians commemorate April the 24th as a symbolic day marking the beginning of the Armenian genocide. Which is interesting genocide. to me because the primary victims all along from the very beginning and then later, of course, were peasants. Sure. But it's the death of the intellectuals and yes. the leading financiers and the other yep. sort of... Yeah, we can call uh, that decapitation, literally. Decapitation, yes. Yeah. Uh, by exterminating uh, the elites, you know, yeah. you, you make it possible to have a population that cannot be led. 
It cannot be led all the more so since uh, the, the overwhelming majority of Armenian uh, young men were conscripted in the Ottoman army. That's right. Okay. Most people don't know that. So you have yeah. also the emasculation in yes. a sense. And those people starting in February uh, 1915 were assigned to special labor battalions mm. where they build road, carry very heavy loads and were killed, starved to death and uh, bayoneted. Uh, you know, they, they were killed there, the males. The remainder of the process uh, started at the end of April and spread from province to province in a very systematic manner, actually. If uh, even a cursory look at the chronology and geography of the areas shows that it's, no, it's not haphazard. Population were told they would be displaced to a secure place, that they shouldn't worry about uh, their houses and so on. It would be taken care of. Okay, they would return. So they would prepare a few belongings to go. Women and the remainder of the males, the people who are 15-year-old or older males, you know, in their 50s, 15 or were separ- or 50s yes. and older, okay. yes. would be separated. Mm-hmm. Males usually overall are killed around town somewhere. Women, children uh, went through extremely lengthy marches to the deserts of Syria mm-hmm. or northern Iraq, being attacked along the way without food and so on. And those who survived, who arrived more or less in, uh, at Aleppo, in northern Syria. Aleppo was a kind of dispatching center. Mm. From there were sent in two directions, where they were left to die in uh, literally the world is camps, but there were no camps. It's not like the uh, concentration camps. You know, there was nothing. They were left to die in the middle of the deserts, mm. uh, being attacked by uh, very often Chechens, starved to death essentially, with uh, many cases of cannibalism being reported, you know, of corpses. So this is the overall process. I know numbers become an object of academic debate. I'm not sure how important it is. But for this period of 1915, from February, then April, and then later on the marches Mm -hmm. and so on, how many Armenians would you estimate were were killed? Again, we will never know for sure. As you know, it's very difficult to prove it and to bet one's life on the the numbers. I would say, in my mind, it's somewhere around 1.2 to 1.5 million. During commemoration, the number is 1.5. In my mind, 1.2 is quite certain, and more is certainly possible. Based on my view of the demography, of population size, you know, that I mentioned earlier, it is my sense that 50 to about 65% of the population was wiped out. That was a 2006 interview of Bishara Dumani, Professor of Modern Middle East History and Director of the Middle East Studies at Brown University, speaking with Dr. Stefan Asturian, Executive Director of the Armenian Studies Program and Associate Adjunct Professor of History at UC Berkeley. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
For the past 35 years, Dr. Hatam Kenane has provided health care to his fellow Palestinians in the Galilee. In 1981, he set up the Galilee Society, an NGO working for equitable health, environmental, and socioeconomic conditions for the Palestinian citizens of Israel. In 2008, he published his first book, a work of nonfiction, about his life as a Palestinian doctor in his memoir, A Doctor in Galilee, The Life and a Struggle of a Palestinian in Israel. His latest book, Chief Complaint, A Country Doctor's Tale of Life in Galilee, provides a unique look at the Palestinian struggle in historic Palestine through a series of fictional short stories based on his experience and the experience of patients he treated in Galilee. So this book, which is titled Chief Complaint, A Country Doctor's Tales of Life in Galilee, in your introduction documents a little bit this strange and difficult status of the Palestinian Israelis, those who are not only Palestinian but happen to be at least technically, citizens of Israel. You say in your introduction that they are seen by other Arabs outside Israel as lackeys of the Jewish state. You yourself speak of a schizophrenic identity. You say, throughout Mm -hmm. my career, I've used writing as a form of psychotherapy to help me deal with my schizophrenic existence as a Palestinian citizen of Mm -hmm. Israel. Tell us more about that. First of all, a critical view of the Palestinian minority in Israel by other Arab people across the border, that negative view was earlier on, before 1967, before we got again linked to the our Palestinian brethren in the occupied territories. And up to that time, the view was that we, as if we were staying there by our choice, we had no choice in deciding that we stay in our homes. It just happened as an accident of history. An oversight by by somebody. (laughs) (laughs) So that is in the past. People who really helped essentially change that view and erase that negative image were our major literary figures, you know, Mahmoud Darwish and Tufir Zayyad and Samih Al-Qasim and so on. So there were enough spokespeople who spoke to the soul of the Arab nation about our issues to a degree that we were again regained respect in the eyes of the other Palestinian and other Arab nations. Even uh, we got to be praised for holding on not only to our land as much as we could, although we lost most of it, but we held on to our culture, to our language, against all odds. 
You open your preface with a Palestinian joke. You say, Palestinian joke speaks of three applicants of different nationalities for a job that demanded uh -huh. ample, ample creativity. Their vetting required each to write an impromptu composition about a randomly selected topic of elephants. The German applicant wrote a piece titled The Origin of the Pachyderm Species. Frenchman wrote an essay, The Sex Life of the Elephant, and the Palestinian wrote a veritable treatise entitled The Elephant and the Question of Palestine. <laughs> <laughs> and you say that you are told this is a variant of a European Jewish joke. How does this parallel between the past travails of the Jews in Europe and today's challenges and difficulties of Palestine, how does that inform your Palestinian identity and your Palestinian experience? I suppose one could blame it on the simple issue of uh, a minority population anywhere gets to suffer at the hands of the of the majority in the country but it goes beyond that essentially in practice we are made to pay for the horrific acts of uh, Europe against the Jews the justification for the Jewish in gathering, so to speak, in their holy land, which is happens to be uh, my home, that justification is based really on look how much the Jewish people have suffered. And then the same group to turn around and to treat us, the Palestinians, whether in the occupied territories or those who are in the camps uh, across the Middle East or ourselves, so the minority who are citizens of Israel legally, Jewish majority treats us definitely in ways that are quite similar to how Europe had treated the Jewish minority uh, historically. And in that sense, it's really unbelievable to think, <laughs> to think that the similarity is not seen by the Jewish population in Israel. Or even in the rest of the world. Or by the rest of the world, indeed. There was Mahmoud Darwish in one interview who pointed out that the Palestinian issue was too important because a lot of Zionists outside and inside of Israel complained that the Palestinian issue is too prominent. You know, there are worse problems than what the Palestinians face. Why is this focus on Palestine? Mm -hmm. And he said the problem is that you... Jews are, because he was interviewed by an Israeli journalist, mm -hmm. the problem is that the Palestinians are important because you are so important, and we are your, <laughs> your problem. <laughs> your, that your makes problem us very, very important. <laughs> 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 so you're stuck with that double-edged uh, uh -huh, irony uh -huh. that on the yes. one hand, we hear about your problems, but we are one of your problems. That's very true. Tufir Zayyad, in one of his uh, famous poems, refers to us as the uh, thorn in the throat of Israel. They just can't swallow can't us. Can't swallow it. And, and, and <laughs> they don't know how to do what, what to deal with us, yes. indeed. In uh, some of these delightful stories you wrote in your book, Chief Complaint, one of them I, I felt particularly symbolic and emblematic. You talk in your introduction about Sumud, the famous Sumud of the Palestinians. Yes, indeed. The forbearance <laughs> and steadfastness, mm -hmm. that rock that cannot be displaced. <laughs> and in your first story about this very interesting and funny character, Adim, I would like you, if you don't mind, to read uh, a little passage for us. 
just as a comment, I would say that almost everyone in the 17 vignettes that uh, constitute the book, almost every central character is an illustration of the character of the Palestinian perseverance and Adim is only one of One illustration. Those, yeah. And these are very autobiographical stories since they're based on your own experience as a doctor. In that Indeed, knowledge. this yeah. is, I mean, as I read him... It's a fictionalized read, account. Of, it's a fictionalized account, but I have a certain character in mind when I'm speaking about, <laughs> about this man. I mean, I can ve- see him in front of me. Yeah. And his name was not Azim, but I named him Azim. Oh, yeah. <laughs> for, it's a great name because in Arabic it means the all-powerful, the all which powerful, usually refers to God, Allah. Right, right. right. <laughs> his, his original name is Abdul Azim, the servant which makes of God, more sense, yeah. the servant of the Almighty. Right. But everybody in the village refers to him as Almighty. <laughs> okay. The incident happened on a hot summer afternoon. My father was having a smoke and a sip of black coffee in the shade of the pomegranate tree at the gate of our compound. We, his two youngest children, were playing with other children in the village square, fronted by the entrance to our compound, with my uncle Salas Diwan on one side of the road and the wall of the same uncle's family compound on the other. Then there was the cross street and to its far side the huge round stone with a hole in its center that formed the opening to a communal rainwater cistern usually covered by a metal flap. The hand-sculpted stone was called kharazi, a bead because of its shape, and next to it stood a stone trough from which the work animals drank. A runaway team of two of my uncle's mules came racing from the east with Azim, shouting, cursing, and running after them. Somehow, I became entangled in their reins. I was swept away by the mules that headed straight to the big stone, one on each side of it. My head slammed against it, causing the rope to snap, and I was released. Azim abandoned the mule chase, grabbed me, and brought me to my father, who had seen it all happen, but was sad of any ability to move at all. He was surprised that I was still alive, scooping a handful of coffee grounds, he pressed it against the gash in my scalp until the bleeding stopped. Others gathered at the scene, and someone took a knife to his leather belt and scraped away at it to produce some organic powder to apply to the wound as a supplement to the coffee grounds. In the meantime, the team of wild mules was subdued and Azim was dispatched on the back of one of them to Nazareth to bring black ointment, a medicated petroleum jelly from an infant infirmary run by French nuns. My survival was taken by relatives to be a proof of my hard-headedness. Some even claimed that my head chipped the stone Azim still remembered the beneficial effects of the black ointment that the nuns had given him gratis. 
That's a very nice. <laughs> <laughs> so that is my connection to Adim <laughs> from very early childhood. To me, it's both very funny and sort of symbolic. After that, you continue a sentence or two. You say, partially because of that injury, Adim had become a veritable living legend in the Arabi of my childhood, a role model of peasant simplicity, ingenuity, and steadfastness, stretching all such qualities beyond reasonableness. <laughs> Dr. Qanani, is this anecdote a metaphor for the Sumud and steadfastness and resourcefulness that still makes uh, I suppose it is, it is spelled out a pretty <laughs> <laughs> in a pretty strong statement <laughs> as such, yes. Although here we're speaking of the physical kind of Sumud, but it is supposed, it is intended to imply, of course, the psychological and uh, political even steadfastness of the Palestinian. And resourcefulness. And resourcefulness as well. <laughs> they always say that the conflict, the struggle between Israel and Palestine is an irresistible force bearing down an unmovable object. <laughs> so the unmovable object is still there. <laughs> In another passage of the same novella, you describe the behavior of some of the sister armies, Arab armies, during the fateful uh -huh. war of 1948, mm -hmm. if we can call that a war, between the Jews and the Arabs in Palestine. I would like you to read us the passage. Villagers recall a man named Damarjian. Um, recalling things that I heard actually from the older generation of yes. uh, the village people. Survivors. Uh, survivors of 1948. Villagers recall a man named Damarjian a Syrian of Armenian descent, who was the commander of the Arab Liberation Army in Arabi in 1948, Arabi, my village. He tried to train Adim in the art of warfare. When the trainee accidentally struck Damarjan in the chest with the defunct grenade, the latter dropped the attempt and went back to his favorite pastime, swinging in his hammock in the shade of the cypress trees at his headquarters at Arabi's school, with a couple of soldiers fanning him with the palm fronds. Surviving villagers recall his troops' other shameful acts, such as demanding to be fed and commandeering donkeys from farmers as typical of the conduct of the ragtag Arab Liberation Army. This was the wartime participation that Zionist propagandists spun into an invasion by the armies of seven Arab countries. And in reality, it was really a very, very shameful bunch of mistrained and also with, with very poor armaments that really couldn't possibly hold the line against the, the mm. modern, well-trained well well, well and British-equipped Israeli Haganah. So Israel has always used the pretext of neighboring Arab governments and militaries to justify the predicament of the Palestinians. Yeah, on our side, we knew the truth, which is <laughs> otherwise. <laughs> and pretty farcical from what <laughs> I can tell in your book. This, this was a ragtag uh, uh -huh. bunch of people. That's very true. The jokes that people in, in the village tell about that army that was there supposedly to defend us. What I liked about this book was the fluent narrative style. 
that is yours. And it's very comfortable. It's very familiar. Remind me a little bit of Amin Malouf's stories. Uh-huh, and thanks. there's a certain music to the language, even though you wrote it in English. Who have been some of your influences, the writers that you really enjoyed reading as a child, the people who have influenced this uh, narrative style? When I started writing these stories or putting them together as a collection, I heard from a friend of mine who teaches creative writing at uh, NYU. This friend, Chuck Wachtel is his name, this professor has read some of the pieces that I posted on my blog. And he paid me the compliment of saying, your writing reminds me of Primo Levi. I, at the time, didn't know who Primo Levi was. And so I went ahead and bought his famous, uh, probably most famous book, The Periodic Table. And the, in the, which, an Italian Jewish writer who wrote about what happened in the Holocaust. And exactly. Other, he's yeah. a Holocaust survivor himself, yeah. and he's a trained yeah. chemist. Yeah. But he wrote and he used the periodic table which lists all the elements in nature to tell the stories about the suffering of the Jews at the hands of the Nazis. And that gave me the idea, after I read his book, the idea of using chief complaint, which is one of the tools of a physician, the main complaint of a patient that brings him to the doctor. So I used this terminology, chief complaint, as my title. But I was influenced by his style, or at least I drew strength from that. Let me step back and say, in preparation for writing, when I convinced myself that I wanted to write fiction, I went ahead and spent a year at City University of New York Graduate Center, there is an institute called the Writers Institute. And I spent a year studying fiction writing, Mm. creative writing and fiction track. And this was four years ago. The emphasis there is on the, the standard American style of writing. And I was preparing myself to go that route. And then I ran across the writing of Primo Levi. And then I remembered my own background, the Arabian Nights or Thousand One Nights, where unlike what we were taught in the course, (laughs) the stories really go on no end of tangentials. You know, one story leads to the other and the other to the other. So Primo Levi sort of helped return me to my roots. And probably the biggest influence on my style of writing would be the famous Palestinian writer, Emil Habibi. He is known for his leaving the main track of his story and going on a tangential and and, and relating something of interest that he is reminded of and so on and so forth. So I do that often. And probably one more comes to mind is Tufiq al-Hakim in his memoirs about his role as a judge in in rural Egypt. But mainly what I would like to somehow get to is to be able to speak not only to the converted, but to speak to the average American reader 
who is not necessarily that well-informed or even that interested, interested yeah. in Palestine or Israel. or right. But to reach that, that's my challenge at this stage. I think you do that very well because your storytelling is not heavy. It's just a story about regular people. It's entertaining. It reminds me of Mark Chagall's famous quote. He said, if you want to tell a universal story, Tell us about your village, which is exactly what you've done. That's in this a book. wonderful quotation that I wasn't aware of. <laughs> I really thank you for that indeed. Dr. Hatem Kanane is the author of A Doctor in Galilee The Life and the Struggle of a Palestinian in Israel. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com, connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.